from an undisclosed location in Boise where we've been potting all along. It's just been for us, not for you. It's the Point of Personal Privilege podcast. We sold about 50 pods to an undisclosed billionaire. We're, we're hoping it was that, Martin Shkreli. <laughs> we're hoping I'll disclose they, it. they also get in trouble with the law and uh, maybe you'll get them through public records. He, uh, he bought that Wu-Tang album for $2 million. We sold our episodes for $2 million each. Each. And we've been doing 50 or 60 of them. That's why you haven't heard any this year. Very exclusive. Hey, Seth, how have you been? Well, we've had a busy little while. We did a legislative busy? session. We did uh, a couple debates. Couple, yeah, a couple few debates. Yeah, you we, produced. I hosted, moderated. I I was on one too. You were, and you did you did very well. Well, you, you did, did very, very nice well. too. Well, thank you, thank you. But but now it's all done, and and we have nothing else to do for the rest of the year. What are you doing on Tuesday night? I'm still dealing with giving up control of one debate, like my uh, my need to control everything. <laughs> still kind of coming back from that, but at least I had a show to produce after that. It must be it must be hard for you. It, 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 <laughs> it is. Must be it's hard weird. for you. I've got nothing to do on Tuesday night. I'm just gonna stay at home. Yeah, watch I'm a not, movie. I'm not planning. Is something going on? You want to grab some pizza? We might as well. Yeah, might as well. Might as well. <laughs> no, we have a whole bunch of primary elections going on. Couple, couple, few. One or two. Yeah. Uh, I have to say, it's it's to the point where I'm starting to avoid some social interactions. You know, like I just try to avoid them, just in well, general, more so than normal, because. Uh, because everyone wants to talk to me about the election, everyone. And, and at some point I just don't want anyone to ask me about the behind the scenes with Paulette Jordan's campaign and why no one's endorsing her or what's the deal with Tommy Alquist. And I, you know, I, sometimes I just want to, I just want to talk about books that I've read, maybe some gardening. And I hope that that will return at the end of May. I had a lucky time. I walked into bizarro world this last weekend. I went up for the U of I graduation and got to talk to a ton of people that were basically like, oh yeah, I think we've heard the elections coming up, but- uh, Some normals? You talked to some really normals. We really don't know much about it. It was, it was amazing mm-hmm. to see the difference in tenor of their debate about who they're going to vote for compared to what we're hearing here in Boise. It was like night and day. And this is Moscow, Idaho, not like Bone, Idaho or- Bonner's Ferry yeah. or something like this. This is a place that you would assume would kind of reflect Boise a little bit. A fairly purple district with a fairly liberal downtown area. I mean, it, you'd think that it wouldn't be too different. What's going on there is what's going on in Boise. But half the people didn't know who A.J. Blukoff was. Almost no one knew who Paula Jordan was. And these are people I'm assuming that you're talking to who are traveling from all over the state to go to that UI graduation? These are people from Moscow itself, some people from Coeur d'Alene, some people from Lewiston, some people from Idaho Falls. I was like, almost everyone knew who Brad Little was and Janice McGee. Those were the only two universal known people. I was very surprised by that. That's interesting. That's interesting. And that's, you know, in some ways, interactions like that are refreshing and in others, uh, in other cases, it's it's really, really scary because this is something that we work really hard on all the time, 40, 50 hours a week. And then we find out that, you know, we can't force people to pay attention. We can't force people to watch our debates. Well, and it's something that we say all the time on the pod and all the time on Edit Reports is ask someone outside of Boise. You That's might get a very it. different answer. Well, and and we do that as much as we possibly can. Uh, but during debate season, it's a little bit hard for us to um, get out of town. I got out of town a few weeks ago. I was able to go up to Wood River Valley and, you know, talking to some locals. And and it's exactly the same. They have a very, very different perspective. And, you know, hanging out in that's legislative district 26. And so, um you know, pretty, pretty blue county coupled in with three fairly red counties um, for that legislative district. And, and it's the same kind of thing, totally different viewpoint than what we get in Boise. That's so important, though, for understanding Idaho politics. And I think people in Boise forget that, that Boise is not, it's not the only part of Idaho. And one of the, one of the other narratives that we'd been hearing initially in Boise and then it kind of went away because people said, oh, this is never going to happen, was how many Democrats are going to cross over into that Republican primary? And it seems like that narrative in Boise became none. This AJ right. race and this Paulette Jordan race are going to keep all the Democrats at home. Democrats aren't going to go play around in the Republican primary. I talked to 15 Democrats, not registered, but 
vote Democrat. Right. And like independence. Independence. Right. But they always. We're doing the air quotes that no one can see. Right. Trust us on this one. All 15 of them said that they were going to vote in the Republican primary. Really? All 15. I've gotten notes from people saying that they're doing the same thing. And and that's um, it's it's really interesting because that's something that the Democratic Party has tried to convince people not to do. They're saying, no, we, we need your votes here for a multitude of reasons. It's not just about picking our candidates in the primary, although that's important to the party, too. It's also about building a list of potential donors. It's it's about um, getting those fundraising emails put together. It's about knowing who is. Uh, potentially going to be an active member of the party. And so crossing over to another party to participate in their primary kind of messes that up. And to be fair, I did talk to about 10 Republicans who all laughed at me when I said, are you going to vote in the Democratic Party? Uh, but they did. And they can. They, <laughs> they legally just laughed, can. laughed in my face. They'd like, why, why would I ever do that? I know. I know. So it's... Um, you know, so much focus has been put on the statewide races and the congressional races, and for good reason. I mean, this primary season has happened. It is really, really interesting. But there are a lot of legislative races, too. And to go to, back to my focus group, almost no one knew who the legislative candidates were. It was mind-boggling. No the, the few people in Moscow that I talked to knew about the Johnson race. Or the Foreman race, sorry. The Dan well, uh, Foreman versus, uh, let me pull up my race, uh, Marshall Comstock. Right, and there right. were signs all around Moscow for that race. Isn't that interesting? And that was the one that everyone was talking about. They didn't know who the other people running were, but they knew about Foreman and Comstock. And it Mm -hmm. seems like maybe there's not going to be a landslide one way or the other from what I heard, but there's probably going to be a lot of people that are voting specifically in this. It was this race and governor is what people in Moscow were talking about. Sure. Although, although if they're in Moscow, they're in congressional district one. Um, and of course, like every Republican Idahoan can vote in that crowded Lieutenant governor race. And so, uh, so it, it's so interesting what people pick up on and what stands out to them. And then the important races, whether it's on a County level or whatever, that just slip totally under the radar. Yeah, I mean, I, I live in Ada County and I have to be honest, I'm going to have to do my homework before um, I figure out who I'm going to vote for, for County positions. And I, I was surprised because some folks that had a very good idea of where Marshall Comstock was, mm-hmm. had very strong feelings about him, did not know who the Republican candidates for CD1 were. <laughs> so that that idea of like the down ticket was at least a little bit reverse there. That those sure, folks were sure. really interested in governor and their local folks. Outside of that, they they weren't really engaged. Right, right. Well, um, you know, before before we get to other statewide races or sorry, legislative races that we're working on, I just wanted to ask you, uh, when it came to our debates, you know, we've talked about big moments from the debates on on the day job show, Idaho Reports. But as far as behind the scenes. How is it for you being the producer for five of them and a panelist for one of them? I think my, my big takeaways um, from the not on TV portion of it, we talked a little bit about this on Idaho Reports the other day, that the, the governor's candidates for Republicans were tense. There was a palpable, I wouldn't say dislike, but it was there was a nervous energy. There was an awkwardness. For folks that have probably been in the same room multiple times over this season, uh, like this campaign season, they did not feel comfortable together. That struck me as interesting. Right. And and there were a couple other tense debates. I think the other tense one that surprised me was the treasurer one. And I'm not just talking about the on TV portion, like you said. I'm thinking about the lead up into it. It was not, people were not at ease, you know, and to give you kind of a behind the scenes on the debates, uh, you know, I, I as moderator, you as producer, we try to make it as comfortable for people as possible. So, I mean, some of these candidates have not been on TV very often. Um, a lot, sometimes the reporter panelists have not been on TV. Um, and so we do what we can to kind of lighten the mood. We ask candidates, Hey, you know, as you've been campaigning around the state, what have your favorite restaurants been? That sort of thing, you know, try and joke a little bit. And we also try to give them their space because right. we, we don't want them to have to be on for an hour and a half as we get them to make up. So we give them their own room so that they can prepare however they want to. We right. don't want to give one candidate an unfair advantage because they're used to smoozing and then jumping up there and they're fine. We want to give everyone as much time as possible to prepare. Right, right. Exactly. And so, so we get, we give them space, we give them downtime when it's time to actually be on the set though 
you know, as as moderator, I'm dealing with, in some cases, nervous reporters. I'm dealing with, in some cases, nervous candidates. And in in a few cases, candidates who really don't like each other. You know, this this debate or um, um, this campaign has turned very personal in uh, more than one race. And I, I think the other race where you saw that was the lieutenant governor uh, debate, the very first one we did for a Republican. I mean, yeah. there were some people that you could tell honestly did not like each other. Right. And and you're really seeing that. You saw a little bit of that on TV. And what's interesting is I hadn't picked up on the Marv Hagedorn animosity towards Steve Yates or Bob Nonini before then, because he's a pretty amicable, friendly guy. Um, you know, there, there were other candidates who it was clear did not like each other. Yeah. And that was the funny thing, because I'm not going to blow anyone's cover, but behind the scenes, it wasn't the folks that were on TV yelling at each other. Some of the folks that were like very angry were not the ones yelling on set. They were right. the ones kind of being awkward behind the scenes. Right, right, right. And so, so we, you know, as, as moderator and producer, we, we get to deal with all of that. And, at, you know, we have to make sure that all of this looks good for TV and ultimately gives voters the information that they need to pick their candidate on on Tuesday. And that race was also typified by maybe the, one of the saddest moments of our debate season when Representative Packer was actually traveling directly from a funeral right. back to our debate. Right. Um, Kelly Packer, who's running for lieutenant governor, um, had lost her mother a month before and then um, was coming back from another family member's funeral. So so she's been dealing with personal tragedy and she uh, showed throughout up all, this campaign season. She showed up all by herself because everyone else was back at the funeral. Right. I mean, part of me wanted to say, just like, don't come. But I know how big a deal it is to be in the only statewide debate. So it was, you kind of had to pick between staying at a funeral and yeah. just giving up on the election. Yeah, we never, you know, and, and to be clear, we never said... Just stay home, Kelly Packer. But we no, we no. did. We would never. We would never say that. But but we did. You know, we we try to accommodate all the candidates. So that's that's a little bit of the behind the scenes. It so so trying to get that tension, um, get candidates past that tension enough that they can be comfortable on set and on television. But then also in some cases, showing that tension is good for the voters because that's where you get some of the the back and forth. In a lot of cases, that back and forth, those fights are pretty illuminating for voters. It's not just entertaining. A lot of information comes out in those moments. But you you also do need those entertaining moments because who's going to sit through an hour and a half policy talk? I mean, you've got well, plenty of those online. I mean, me. <laughs> I know, but most nor saying, most normal human beings are going to shut it off down. about 20 minutes in right. going like, this is boring. And they're, you need a little bit of sugar to make that medicine go down. A little just and a tiny little bit. Sugar in the form of fights and accusations of Drama. stolen valor. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but legislative races really have not gotten that much play uh, except for pretty localized coverage. But, you know, as we've seen, even races in, in North Idaho or Eastern Idaho really affect the entire state, the entire legislature. It affects things like legislative leadership it affects what kind of legislation comes through. Um, and I think you're going to see a lot of turnover this year, not just because there's a lot of open seats, but I think mm -hmm. you could see some incumbents encountering a little bit of problem in some of these races. Uh, both you and I went through these races the other day. I did I did my homework and I actually printed them off and then left my list at, a, at another place. Yeah, I, I mean... I've done homework with a, with a small H, small H homework. Like I've looked at the list and looked up a few races, but um, so, well, so I don't want to go through every single district, but I do want to highlight some that I am keeping an eye on. And by homework, I mean, I printed off a list and start a couple of people for about four minutes earlier today. <laughs> we take our job very, we no, do. but, but in all seriousness, we have been talking to people. We have been, we have been keeping an eye on things. Um, I haven't dug through all of the campaign finance documents on every single one of these races. I'll be honest. Sadly, I may have gone through almost all of them. I <laughs> I understand. Legislative District 1. I think you're going to see a fascinating matchup between Herndon and Woodward. So th this would be for the open seat left by uh, Senator Sean Keogh, who's retiring this year. You've got one candidate, and I'm actually drawing a blank on which one's which, that kind of matches more up with the Heather Scott crowd, one that's more of an establishment candidate that's more in the line of what Sean Keogh was, being backed by a lot of establishment money. Uh, and, the, and Heather Scott's folks are obviously out in support of the other one. 
Melissa's frantically Googling to make sure that I'm talking about the right one on either side because, would, as I said, I only that? did four minutes of homework. But I do that? remember that the um, the campaign finance lined up on either side. Um, it, it was a pretty clear delineation. Pretty like clear, those lines yeah. are drawn. And the same is going on in uh, the the representative race with Scott and Mike Bach, which I, you could you could almost see that these folks are running as a, like pretty much a ticket together. There's the Scott ticket and then there's the establishment ticket. So Keo has endorsed um, Jim Woodward so for her be, Senate seat. So it'd most likely be Jim Bach and Woodward and Herndon Scott and Heather Scott. That right. you see is where kind of the lines break down. Scott Herndon. And they're both, all sides are raising a lot of money. It seems like there's a, there's quite a bit of support on both sides. Everyone seems like they're running a pretty active like campaign. Right. I mean, you're this is almost the first time where you're really going to see uh, that almost that Keogh versus Scott race that we never got to see because both of them were you know very different politically, but we're getting sixty to seventy percent of the vote. And there's a lot of crossover between the two of them. This might be the time where you get at least a glimpse into what if they ever ran against each other. Right, right. It's, it's the what if Michael Jordan ever played LeBron James. You're never going <laughs> to see it. This might be our fantasy world where we could see how this would actually play out. You know, we have tried to get a fantasy legislative league going on and uh, a lot of work. I think you've seen with us, we might have a short attention span sometimes. We get really great ideas. We get really excited about them. And then... We get excited about something else. Legislative District 2. I am keeping an eye on that open seat left by uh, Eric Redman. Um, so there are two Republicans and two Democrats in that one. Um, Doug Okunowitz, I think is how you spell his name, is kind of the more establishment. I think you can just call him Duggo. 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 Duggo uh, is, I think, the more establishment guy. I, I'm... Not mis if I'm not mistaken, let me look this up. I think the other candidate was Phil Hart's attorney. That's interesting. This is not one that I had on my list. Um, oh. I just assumed that this would go to a newly minted Republican representative in the end. No idea which one that'll be, but I'm pretty sure it'll go to a newly minted Republican representative that's so, fairly conservative. So, yeah, I mean, John Green is, has support from, you know, Letters to the editor and readout news. Um, he was a, the attorney for uh, tax protester Phil Hart. And we'll get back to Phil Hart in a minute because he is running for the legislature. Wait a minute. What day is it? Is he on the ballot today? He is on the ballot as of right now. Um, so so that that one's going to be pretty interesting to watch. Um, you know, Legislative District 2, of course, that readout influence is always really interesting. Um but at the end of the day, it's pro. I mean, it's probably going to be a little bit more traditionally conservative than Redmond was, just because Redmond would occasionally throw you a wild card. I think with either of these candidates, they're they're probably going to be fairly on the, fairly the right of right area, no yeah. matter who wins. Redmond supported uh, Medicaid, uh, the the dual Medicaid waiver program. You know, he's spoken in favor of Medicaid expansion in the past. And so that that's an interesting district, interesting folks in there. Uh, Legislative District 3, you have um, Kathy Don Sims, if she's on. Well, so Bob Nonini, uh, who, of course, left the legislature to uh, run for lieutenant governor. Um, Don Cheatham is running for his seat, leaving an open spot in the legislature. Um, Kathy Sims and Tony Wisniewski. Wisniewski. Sounds good to me. Sounds good to me. And Kathy Sims, of course, was not on the ballot for all of early voting because of a lawsuit from the Secretary of State's office um, alleging that she was not qualified to serve in the legislature. A judge ruled against the Secretary of State. Depending on how close that primary is, that's likely one that's going to see, that's going to end up in front of a judge. And we heard uh, Secretary Denny hoping for large margins so that this would not be a problem. I actually do think that this is one where they're going to get large margins. Yeah. I, I had heard a lot of people that were concerned that Cheatham might not be able to hold off a challenger. And I'm assuming that challenger was going to be Sims before everything shook out and uh, Cheatham moved up to the Senate seat. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of support behind Sims. That being said, I haven't spent a whole lot of time in Coeur d'Alene or Post Falls recently. Sure. So, Unfortunately, because I love it up there. It is. I love Coeur d'Alene. I uh, drove for six hours. I could have driven in another hour and a half and well, figured it out. But 
I figured I should see uh, all the friends and family that were up at U of I. In District 4, um, I'm keeping an eye on that Paul Amador, Roger Garlock primary. Paul Amador, of course, is a first time, uh, f- first term uh, legislator from Coeur d'Alene. Um, so running for his second term. And uh, a representative that you could slightly argue does not fit the district totally. He's fairly, when you look at Sousa and you look at some of the people who have used are used to holding seats in that district, they're a little bit more conservative. But we've also seen a Malik and an Amador come out of that area. So it's almost kind of on par with that District 1 where you see a Keo and a Heather Scott. It's hard to it's hard to really wrap your head around where the district is going to go. It might actually just come down to good old-fashioned popularity contest. Who's the, who's the person that you actually like? Who's the guy you want to have a beer with or the woman you want to have a beer with? Paul Amador, really likable guy. Um, charismatic and young and has been campaigning really, really hard. Uh, has a cute baby. So all pluses in his favor when it comes to the popularity contest. So we've already talked a little bit about District 5. Um, I the, have no idea with the uh, Comstock foreman, but everyone's talking about it. Up everyone's there. talking about it. You know, what's interesting is for the representatives, um, there are two primaries for the house in district five. I don't know anything about them, but I will note that the uh, seat vacated by Paulette Jordan, uh, um, Margie Gannon replaced her. There's no democratic challenger for that position. Rather, there are two Democrats running uh, in the primary for the other house seat in district five who are going to, you know, the winner of that's going to run against Carolyn Nelson Troy. So just a little side note there. And the the one thing that I would point about, just interesting about this district is that there's an open seat available, but everyone's talking about the Republican primary. That's not that open seat, which exactly. is very odd. Yeah. Um, you know, going down to district seven, you're um, skipping over the old assistant or the old minority that's, leader. That's, well, that's a general race. <laughs> I know, but it's just kind of interesting that, uh, he's back in the field. Look, it, it's interesting that he doesn't have a John Rushi in district six does not have a primary challenger. And so we'll go ahead, not do a podcast until November. And then the Monday before the general election, we'll mention John Rushi again. Are you happy? Well, someone's going to purchase all these podcasts that we do between now and then. So well, we, we get... <laughs> Martin Shkreli. <laughs> exactly. No, but the we'll other... enjoy our commentary then. The other little quick commentary is District 6. It seems like the Democrats have ceded District 6 to the Republicans, which is surprising because there's been a lot of Democrats that have won there recently. And you only see John Rushi running for his old seat. That, that is that a really I good think point. That is very interesting. There no are challengers no... to the senator, no challengers to Thyra Stevenson, who has lost not too long ago. Right, right. Um, lost to Dan Rudolph. No, that is a very good point. All right. Point taken. District 7. Um, interesting that Carl Crabtree doesn't have a more conservative challenger. He's the one who beat Cheryl Nexel in 2016. But again, very amicable dude rancher yeah fairly liked in the community didn't cause you know ruffle that many feathers in the legislature and i don't think there's necessarily a huge target on his back for any real reason whereas sure. the other portion of it representative giddings and representative shepherd never afraid to ruffle feathers absolutely yeah um three-way race uh priscilla giddings versus former representative shannon mcmillan uh who priscilla giddings had beat in the 2016 primary and then newcomer Ryan Lawrence. Um, I think that Giddings probably has the advantage of being the incumbent. Um, and then also living near the population area, um, near Grangeville, where Shannon McMillan, uh, district seven is so weird. It stretches from North Idaho, you know, Wallace, mm-hmm. Shoshone County, all the way down. It, it is really weird. And the, the one thing that you saw, if I'm remembering my uh, voting for District 7 breakdown from <laughs> a couple of years <laughs> back, this is how nerdy I am, is you really did see McMillan hold a little bit of her own up in the north and then Priscilla Giddings kind of run the rest of that district right. from Riggins, where she's from, right. up through Grangeville in that area. You throw in a candidate from Kendrick, you could conceivably just split, just geographically split that district three ways. Sure, sure. I... And that's one we're going to be keeping an eye on. And, and I wouldn't put money on anything, even though the Supreme Court says that states can legalize sports betting now. And this is pretty much a sport. <laughs> this is 
the best sport. The best, the, the only sport. The only this sport. is the only sport. Uh, you know, the other representative in that district, uh, Paul Shepard, being challenged by Phil Hart, who. It's like, a blast Ka- from the past. I know. Like Kathy Sims, uh, 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 Secretary of State, said that he hadn't lived in the district long enough to be uh, qualified to serve in the legislature. And not the first time that previous representative Phil Hart has run into problems with the uh, the powers that be either. All these feather rufflers. I, I know. Love it. I love it. I mean, the one thing that I can be sure of is no matter how all of these primaries play out, we're going to have one, possibly two very interesting people coming out of District 7. Absolutely. It's going to be a good time. Absolutely. District 8, you've been watching this one. So District 8 is one that I'm not, no one's really told me this. But just through anecdotal uh, yard signs, through talking to a few people, and through looking at the campaign financing numbers, Marla Lawson is running a heck of a campaign. She's supported by the Freedom Foundation folks. She's supported by a bunch of very um, active conservation or conservative thinkers throughout the state of Idaho. And she's got the money. She's got all the yard signs. I you haven't heard much out of Steve Thane recently. I know that the senator's won races before, but he hasn't been challenged in a while. This has all the um, the the footprint of uh, who am I thinking of? <laughs> Getty, where you've got a senator who's very active, very involved down in uh, Boise but kind of loses track of what's going on back in their district. And by the time they get back to run that campaign, they they didn't realize that some upstart person has already taken the district from them. You're talking about John Getty losing to Mary Susan in 2014? That's what, I'm, that's what I was trying to conjure from the brain. <laughs> from the brain parts. From the brain parts. A little bit rusty. Um, I am, you know, don't know much about uh, the, the more Western Idaho districts, to be honest. Um, I do know that District 11, position B, um, five-way primary uh, with a lot of interesting names in there. So that is Christy Perry's spot. And she, of course, uh, left the House so she could run for Congress. David Lincoln, I know, has been campaigning actively. Um, And the interesting dynamic there is his daughter, uh, Chelsea Gayona Lincoln, is... um, running as a Democrat in a different legislative district. And it's interesting because I wanted to talk about legislative district 11 as well, but oh. I wanted to talk about the Senate race because Brooks, Patty Ann Lodge. barely, barely lost to Patty Ann Lodge two years ago. It was one mm-hmm. of the closest races that we saw out there. He's back and he's got a lot of cash right. and he's running hard. Um, I would, I would chalk that one up to an absolute coin flip. I think if Patty Ann is not running, she's probably not coming back because she's got to she's got to be running hard if she's going to keep this seat because Zach Brooks is coming. Well, and and Patty Ann Lodge has a lot of respect from so many people in the Senate, but she's also made some people mad for a few different reasons. You know, she has um, as the chairman of the uh, Senate. Judiciary and Rules Committee, she has put a lot of legislation in the drawer, uh, effectively killing it for the year, um, which is certainly the chairman's prerogative. But she did that with mandatory minimums, which had the governor's support and passed the House was a was a bipartisan piece of legislation. Yeah, you could say that she she really is like a rebel in that John McCain version because she's going to she's going to anger the Freedom Foundation. She's going to anger the governor. She's going to anger her leadership. I mean, she's pretty much all, I mean, she's an equal opportunity going rogue type of anger type of senator. Right. She's, she's going to do what she thinks right. You know, right. and sometimes a lot of people aren't going to agree with that. Right. Exactly. And, and I know that people have felt that way with um, justice reform issues being as contentious as they are. And honestly, as expensive as they are in the state right now. Let's see. What else? What else? Where was I going next? District 14, that open Senate no, seat open left team. by Senator Hagedorn. Um, six-way race. I think. Which is. If you can guess that one, you're a better pros- prognosticator than I am. Right. I, You know, these are, a, a lot of these folks are campaigning pretty actively. I should say, I should note that 
the six Republicans who are running for that, one of those is a write-in. Um, but except for Darren Driscoll, who I don't know much about, I have seen um, four of these people campaigning actively <clears throat> and no idea. Uh, Todd Hatfield, former statewide candidate, you know, no idea how this is going to go. And now I was going to jump all the way down to 22 because no one cares about Ada County. Not, no one. No, <laughs> no one, one at all. Does. There's there's nothing going on on the bench. <laughs> nothing going on in Garden City right now. <laughs> Jeez, that that uh, that District 16 race, uh, that seat left by High Clock, um, who uh, is leaving the house to, to focus on his health. That one is another one that I absolutely cannot call. Five Democrats running for this open seat. Three of them have high profile endorsements. And um, I haven't looked at all the campaign finance forms, like I said, but I have seen ads and signs for Rob Mason, Colin Mash, George Tway, who filled in for High Clock for the last part of the session. Um, fascinating. And getting to kind of what I said about one of the other races earlier, I also haven't seen that much differentiation within the the folks. None at all. Yeah, I, I don't know the significant difference in policy between any one of them. Arguably, I haven't been as focused on that as I have on some of the statewide candidates. But it, it does strike me as, again, it's going to come down to who do the people of that district like rather than major policy differences that they have. I, I actually um, I have a friend who lives in District 16 and she was just looking for information on the candidates. And, and I told her everything that I knew. And we kind of agreed that, you know, in this case, it really comes down to who knows who and who's getting endorsements from who, because we could not find anything measurable that was different. As far as policy proposals go, Rob Mason, Colin Nash is specific uh, or uh, particularly interesting to me because they're both pretty young guys. Um, and so one of has Nash ran before. I, I believe he's been involved in I feel like this is a pop quiz that I'm race. really going to fail. I'm, no, this is an honest question. Yeah. I feel like I've seen Nash before, but I could be. I could be wrong. I can't keep track of all 200 some odd people who've probably ran in this primary in the last one. <laughs> uh, we're losing our touch, Seth. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we used to be better at this. Well, I am also keeping my eye on Legislative District 17, which is where I live. There is a primary challenge to uh, Representative John Gannon from political newcomer Randy Johnson. Uh, that's pretty interesting and it's kind of taking over my neighborhood's conversation well and you wrote extensively about this on the blog for edit reports yeah it was it was so weird for me um because i got uh messages from responsible leadership for idaho pack which previously had handled um tens of thousands of dollars from the idaho legislative democratic caucus um and and that's basically the money that all the democratic lawmakers put put their campaign or uh, their contributions into. And the um, this PAC had spent that money to get Democrats elected during the general election in 2016 um, with not very much success, I'll say, because they actually lost some seats, including John Rushi and Dan Schmidt. Anyway, all of that said... But like all PACs will say, it would have been even worse if we weren't involved. True, true. It would have been even worse, I'm sure. So... Um, they like they had only been involved in the general election previously. And this year they got involved not only in a, in two Democratic primaries in 16, which we just talked about. And in 17, um, they're go, they're supporting a challenger to an incumbent, an incumbent who had given money to the IDLCC previously, which is fascinating. This sounds eerily similar to a story that you wrote. Even further back. In 2012? It does. Yeah. It does. Yeah. It's it's a little bit less nefarious than the gun pack, Louis Bezito uh, shenanigans against Ken Roberts in uh, 2012. Because people, um, it, there's an election cycle removed, at least. There's no legislative caucus money involved in this race right now from this uh uh, you know, go, going to this challenger, Randy Johnson. Uh, but it's it's still pretty darn interesting. The other interesting thing about this primary is that it's taking a very local neighborhood discussion um, on the Boise bench where I live. And it's it's affecting the state legislative race, which arguably has nothing to really do with it. Um, John Gannon had opposed Boise getting F-35s, uh, the Jets. and And of course... Boise did not get the F-35s last year. Um, thanks, Gannon. 
Thanks, Gannon. <laughs> and, um, you know, a lot, a lot of people from Boise City Hall wanted the F-35s in Boise. Uh, Randy Johnson, who has a lot of ties to Boise City Hall, uh, at least supporters in Boise City Hall looking at his campaign finance sheets. Um, he supported the F-35s according to a social media post that he did about a year ago. And so... And he also has a family tie. His wife was the scheduler for Mayor Dave Beter. So, I mean, there's a direct connection to that. There's there's not just the F-35s. There's actually family connections. Right, right. And so... Um, and it would make sense because I suppose if, if you ran for election... I would hopefully support you. It wouldn't be a very good sign if Troy and I were like, yeah, vote for the other person. <laughs> like literally anyone but Melissa, trust us, <laughs> please. I, I, I feel like that's us. an endorsement that people could take into consideration. Right. And we're like, well, if Seth doesn't like her, I probably do. Um, or but- I hate that Seth. I'm definitely voting for her. <laughs> so uh, so this is a um, it's a neighborhood fight. Yeah. When you look at the actual issues themselves, the legislative issues that they would be dealing with, they're they're very similar, if not the same. Um, they both have high profile endorsements. They both have a lot of support among Boise Democrats. Um, it's it's pretty evenly split. The neighborhood signs that I see on my you know running routes or taking my kid to school. I, I can't call this race right now. And from a statewide impact, I mean, we're probably not going to see that much of a difference. I mean, whether it's Gannon or Jansen. Johnson, 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 Randy Johnson, yeah. I I was almost going to say Randy Johnson, who was someone who ran for someone else. Um, (laughs) Last from the past. uh, But I mean, like the statewide impact is going to be almost nil. Their voting record is going to be probably about the same. I mean, I can't imagine when any of them are going to like join the House Freedom Caucus if they get in there or anything like that. I don't know. Maybe maybe Gannon's (laughs) angry enough that he will. Who knows? Well, and so this is where I I think that there might be a slight difference is that, you know, the the argument is basically John Gannon was willing to stand up to what we call in Boise team beater. You know, the, the Democrats who are all in with Mayor Dave Beater and uh, who is if not one of the most powerful Democrats in Idaho, the most powerful Democrat in Idaho. Um, and that, how much is that going to make a difference for the Boise bench? Um, that, that willingness to say, no, you know what, this policy doesn't work for my neighborhood and my constituents. And I would definitely agree with that, but it kind of makes the, the metaphor I would use was you vote for a governor based on, what they did in the PTA meeting, whether or not they're very vocal in a PTA meeting doesn't necessarily mean they'll stand up to Trump or stand up to Obama or something like that. It's, it's kind of a weird corollary. If Gannon had a propensity to stand up to Matt Roperding, on the other hand, I would say, oh, that makes perfectly good sense. But this just seems like a corollary, corollary that isn't going to have much impact when that person actually gets to the state house. Uh, you know, I, I will say it takes a lot of guts to stand up to those crazy Boise bench dwellers. They, they get pretty feisty on our neighborhood Facebook board. And you never want to fight a battle uphill. So beware (laughs) District 19. That's right. That's right. Um, what else are you keeping an eye on? Well, I, unless you were looking at something else, because a lot of the Mm. other, there are some other races, but they're not terrible. Even if the challenger wins, I don't see a major impact going forward. I was going to jump all the way down to district 23. Do it. Because Oscar Evans is challenging Christy Zito. And this is another one of those kind of bellwether Republican races where you have an establishment, uh, Longtime Idahoan dude about town running against dude about town dude about dude about town. I think that's on his campaign flyers. Oscar dude about <laughs> dude town, about town. Uh, who's running against uh, a member of the Liberty Caucus. You know, Freedom Foundation endorsed candidate who was there. You know, arm in arm with Heather Scott, Hanks, Priscilla Giddings, those folks, and it's another place where you see that fault line in the Republican Party and where things are kind of going to move forward within the Republican caucus over the next couple of years as this continuing civil war that's so popular it's even taking place in the Democratic Party now. (laughs) It's so fun to fight. (laughs) To move forward. And I, I mean, that's another one where I'd say at this point, it looks like a coin flip to me. I'm hearing, you know, Folks in the Freedom Foundation who are very confident in Zito and folks from the establishment who are very confident in Evans. So uh, I don't think there's a clear winner here. And I think it's going to be a bellwether for a lot of other races. No, I I drove through District 23 a little bit ago. Uh, Christy Zito has a lot of signs out. She's campaigning hard. Remember, Zito beat uh, Rich Wills 
two years ago uh, in a race that surprised a lot of people, including us. That was including I, Rich Wills, I think. including <laughs> Rich Wills. I think that was one of two races that took us off guard that year. And that would be a, a similar and, race to, and the, we're good at this. to the Getty race a little while back right? where, right. where you had an incumbent that just kind of didn't realize they were in trouble until mm-hmm. it was too late. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, District 24, that Steve Hartgen open seat, his wife is running for it. It seems to have a lot of support in Twin Falls. Rocky Farenberg is also running for it. Um, and I've heard some good things about Farenberg, too. Right, so, right. like, I, I would probably... You know, if that that online gambling starts happening pretty soon and politics is considered a sport, I'd probably put my money on Harkin, but, you know, Who anything's knows? possible. Who knows? You know, uh, District 25, very interested in that open seat left by Maxine Bell. Um, after, a, after a couple decades in that spot, you have three Republicans who are running um, Glenetta. Oh, don't make me pronounce that last name. <laughs> Glenetta Z. Ms. Z. Z. Yeah, she she's the she's the readout news um, kind of aligned with that uh, wing of the Republican Party. Roy Prescott got the endorsement from the Times News. Lori Lickley has the endorsement from a whole lot of other people, including ag groups. And so that is absolutely a race to watch those you know, any three of those candidates. I think um, I put my money on Lori Lickley just because she is so tied in with um the those jerome county republicans um everything that i've heard and seen a lot of people are very impressed by her so um all I, three candidates from jerome all three yeah, all three candidates yeah. i mean it's hard to tell with jerome because the 800 north and 400 east could be very far away from each other well, but jerome <laughs> county isn't that big so it, it is absolutely true another one to keep your eye on but i, I that's one that i couldn't guess i have no idea yeah yeah um, not spending enough time in Jerome since uh, Maxine left us at the I state know, house. I know. Although there, there are some okay Mexican restaurants in downtown Jerome, just so you know. Um, Fred Wood has his first primary challenge, I think, in his entire career uh, uh, in District 27. Talking to Representative Wood, I remember that he, he believes he remembers another challenger. Once. Which, which gives you an idea of how long ago that is. If may, someone like, believes maybe, they may have another maybe. challenger at one point. I'm not, I'm not too worried about it, but again, I've been surprised before. And in the minimal research that I've done, I could not figure out for the life of me who Kevin Williams was. So he might be running a, a good old-fashioned boots on the ground brick and mortar campaign but his online presence at least last time i checked for not very vast no no uh district 28 that open seat left by kelly packer there are four republicans running for it including someone who appears to be related to the former representative ken andrus um mr kevin andrus also from lava hot springs um no idea on that race. Going to keep an eye on it, though, certainly. Due to debate season, we have not gotten over to the uh, Pocatello right. area recently. Jeff Thompson in District 30 has a hardy uh, primary challenge. This um, will be an interesting race, specifically when you talk about all those uh, Democrats that I ran into up in Moscow that are voting in, in that the Republican, Republican primary, a uh, good seven or eight of them came from this district. Uh, right. And uh, when you look at the fault lines that happened in the last mayoral election, there was a lot of Republicans, both centrist and extreme, that were not super excited with Jeff Thompson after that race. And you could see a lot of that bad blood come back. Then you also have... The Vandersloots getting involved in this race. Oh, I didn't know the Vandersloots were involved Who in this do race. do not get involved in very many things at all, have gotten involved in this one and not for Jeff Thompson, Uh-oh. which is Ooh. which is never a good thing for money. But also, it's not like Vandersloots had the best record of endorsing presidential candidates recently either. So you never know. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, Wendy Horman also has a primary challenge in that district. Uh, Randy Neal. I believe the same candidate who challenged her last time. Yeah, yeah. I, I think she's probably safe, uh, but one we will keep an eye on for election night. Um, the, the more interesting one might actually be the District 31, where uh, Wendy Horman's partner in crime, Julie Van Orden, has a challenger. Julianne Young from Blackfoot. Who, who I can honestly say I l- who know almost little to nothing about, but I've had a lot of political operatives say, keep your eye on that race just in case. Oh, interesting. Interesting. So that's your little to no analysis. A friend told me, hey, maybe, maybe look at that one. <laughs> uh, I, in 33, I think that um, the that Tony Potts, who was appointed to um, 
to replace Bart Davis after he was appointed to be U.S. attorney. I think that is going to be a very interesting race. Tony Potts has uh, seen some criticism lately for using campaign funds for things like rent and dry cleaning and things that you don't usually use campaign funds for. And I've already had more than one uh, political operatives that have large pack money behind them already doing a victory dance that they took Tony Potts out. So well, if at this point with the uh, the insider inf- information, I would almost be more surprised if Potts wins. <laughs> well, uh, I, I will say Mr. Dave Lint, uh, who is running against um, who is running against Tony Potts. Uh, you know, he's a he's a school board member. He um, works for an INL contractor. Uh, you know, he. He's not the most well-known Republican in that area, but he has an impressive resume. And if people aren't a fan of Tony Potts, um, who was aligned with the Freedom Foundation, um, you know, made some friends by being an advocate for CBD oil, uh, stood up to Lee Heider, um, got some major brownie points for that in some Republican circles. Um, but maybe not with the establishment. And so I think that's that might hurt him in this primary. And also, we, we have not seen him win an election before. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we don't really know what he's like as a campaigner. He might be amazing. He might not be. Well, I mean, this is going to be our time finding out. Candidates are very different than people uh, actually serving in the office. There are some lawmakers who are not maybe the most eloquent or well-spoken or greatest debaters. And I've seen them on the campaign trail and they're, and they're phenomenal. And then exactly the opposite too. I've seen people who really struggle with the campaigning part who are magnificent lawmakers, you know, by the measure of getting things done. No, exactly. Exactly. Uh, moving down the list, where are we at right now? Let's go 34. Oh, we've got the big rematch in 34, don't we? Ron Nate versus Doug Ricks. This one was close last time. I think it's gonna be close this time it's too. It's gonna be close this time. Uh, I Doug Ricks has got one campaign under his belt. He knows what it looks like. He knows what he's getting himself into. No wide-eyed greenhorn novice at this point. Um, and he's still got the establishment backing him, and he's still got a lot of people that. Um, for better or for worse, are targeting Ron Nate because they've wanted him out of that seat for a couple of years now. Well, and and the Nates have gotten some negative press lately. In, in the last week, for a mailer that went out attacking Lieutenant Governor candidate Steve Yates that included an email um, that was from Ron Nate's mother-in-law, uh, who, who was a matron of the Idaho Republican Party, Sheila Olson. Um, Ron... Nate's wife had forwarded an email from her mom uh, between uh, it was a conversation between her and Steve Yates wife. um, And that ended up being used in an attack ad against Steve Yates after Sheila Olson died. Maria Nate ended up going on um, Neil Larson's radio show last week to apologize for it, you know, and and that's that's pretty telling. And so it absolutely is. But I I would never count out the Nates. No, they, because they work so hard. The, I was there, what, two years ago. Yeah. Looking at that race and pretty much the establishment, Boise, a lot of the state had already counted Nate out. Doug Ricks was the perfect candidate. He was the one that was going to knock him off, but talking to folks on the ground, they like Nate. Someone I talked to was going to vote for Hill and vote for Nate because they thought that the two of them represented the district better than just one of them. I mean, so isn't that fascinating because they are diametrically opposed to each other in so many ways, very different folks. And yet I, you know, like they both represent the district. Right. Right. If we, even if we move down to that other open seat down there, I think that one will be fascinating as well. Yes. So, uh, Del Raybold stepped down from the house this year and his granddaughter, Britt Raybold is running for that seat has been actively campaigning, at least online. Um, then you have two other Republicans running for that seat, Marshall Merrill and Elaine King. Definitely keep your eye on that one. It's going to be fascinating. And yeah, another one where you're going to kind of see where the fault lines in the Republican Party kind of come down. It's, it right. should be interesting. And it's also the you've got a wife and a granddaughter 
of a sitting legislator, we're going to also get to see how big those family ties are. If people are just used to voting for a last name and they're going to keep going there. Raybold, Raybold Harkin. Yeah. Um, now one the, more race. So, well, two more, uh, two races. more races. Sorry, two more races. If there's you, an open seat, in if 35. you look at the Senate race there, I think this one is going to be fascinating. Van Burton Shaw, who's going for that open Senate seat, but is a well known person, yeah, <laughs> through, throughout the state house, is in for a run for his money. Judd Miller is getting a lot of money from the Freedom Foundation. Um, if you look at Van Burton Shaw's fundraising, it's mostly PACs, it's mostly. Mm-hmm folks from the legislature it's not people from his district which and is never a good sign they, and they have a lot of money raising. they have a lot of money and money buys yard signs money buys ads and ads help yard signs help but yeah. people who donate money are definitely voting for you unless they're not in your district <laughs> yes. and that's the problem absolutely you're absolutely right then so, there's that open seat left by van burtonshaw as he moves up to the senate which is also like going to be inter- i mean all i think my two most fascinating districts for me are 35 and one, the com- the ones on the complete bookends, because as much as we're saying there was a couple other bellwethers for the Republican Party, I think these two are the big ones. I think you, right. in in a weird year, we've we've kind of seen how the Freedom Foundation and the establishment have been interacting with each other over the last four years now. Right. I think people have a good idea of what they're going to expect. And a lot of these um, Liberty Caucus candidates ran on, I'm going to go and I'm going to rough things up. I'm going to make change. Well, now they're coming back and they're saying, here's what I actually did. Right. And right. I think in 135, a couple of these others, I think the the time is to cash the check right now. And they're going to, I think a lot of the voters in these areas are going to say either you did exactly what I wanted you to do. We're going to put you back there, keep causing trouble or, eh. Maybe that didn't work out for us. This is not what I signed up for. Yeah, and I and I think you could see some major swings in in both thirty five and one. I think it could get really interesting. Well, and and that's I I think to a lesser extent seventeen is a bellwether for the Democratic Party, um, in a different way than that governor races for for kind of the same reason. They're looking at John Gannon and saying, you know, is he doing what we asked him to do when we voted him in in twenty twelve, and you know, some people are saying yes, and some people are saying, you know what. No, maybe he's not as productive as some of the other Democratic lawmakers that we've we've seen. What I hear you saying is John Gannon is the Kerry Hanks of the Democratic Party. Quote me. <laughs> Quote me. <laughs> That's the episode name. That's we got it. it. No. Where can the people find us, Melissa? <gasps> On Twitter sometimes at the pod or online if I renew the website at com. You can also see us on Facebook if I remember the password. Search for Point of Personal Privilege Podcast. You, you got to pay for the website. I keep on stealing that photo for random things that have to do oh, at work. I know. It's a good <laughs> photo. I can steal the photo from there. What am I going to use for my press mm-hmm. stuff? It's a good photo. So question for you. What's that? Once we don't have election stuff to obsess over, what's your new obsession going to be? Well, there is baseball over the summer. And I appreciate that. And we've got a lot of other things to do at Idaho Public Television, including Outdoor Idaho's, including Idaho Experiences, including... Oh, don't remind me of work. Getting ready Stop for it. the next year. Stop it. But first and foremost, I have to take almost 100 hours of comp time and almost <laughs> two hundreds of vacation time. So I will be headed for the hills in a deep, deep study of not doing crap. <laughs> yeah, I, I can appreciate that. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye.